do go to God's Word because it is His Word which is living and active. I'll ask you to turn to John chapter 2. Last week we looked at the great I Am. Jesus, the great I Am. In a summary of this study we've done together through the Gospel of John, I originally thought we could do it in one Sunday. About Tuesday of last week, I went home, Amy said, are you ready? I said, yeah, I'm ready. We're going to have two closing sermons. If I preach the seven I am's and the seven signs in one Sunday, we'll all be finished. <laughs> so this morning we turn back to John one more time in this series. I'm sure we'll go there many other times. And we bring a, I, I want to bring a message entitled, Jesus Christ, the Great I Am. The United States has become the largest exporter, in my mind, of false teaching in the whole world. We now teach false doctrines like word of faith, the prosperity gospel, higher life doctrine, strange forms of Pentecostalism around the world. Perhaps the most famous worldwide false teacher is a man who claims to be able to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk, the deaf hear. And he's even claimed to be anointed for raising the dead. He made this claim while on TV, November of 1999, sitting at Paul and Jane Crouch's lair, being broadcast around the world, he said, and I quote, people are going to be canceling funeral services and bringing their dead in their caskets, placing them for a, before a TV set, waiting for God's power to touch them. He said they'd be raised from the dead. Thousands would be raised from the dead. This is his claim. This is his claim to an anointing. Now, when Jesus sent His disciples into the surrounding area of Israel to do ministry, He specifically gave them the ministry of healing the sick, casting out demons, and preaching the gospel. That was their ministry. He told them, specifically in regard to healing, take no one's money. When you heal a man, don't take his money. That was Jesus' command to His disciples as they went on their great preaching and ministry opportunity. They were not to take one denarii from the people. In contrast, this modern-day false apostle that I've been talking about makes an estimated $1 million in simple salary. That does not include the fact that he receives royalties from his many books, perks which include a private jet, Expensive month-long trips to Europe in luxury hotels where he stays at a whopping tune of $3,500 a night in presidential suites. He uses several luxury vehicles which every one of them cost over $80,000. The ministry has provided him with a $10 million home in California. And this does not even include his petty cash, which he takes to the tune of $25,000 a receipt at times for expenditures with his family. Petty cash from a ministry which he has built on the backs of poor, poor, old, decrepit people. This man, along with uh, every other huckster, will have to face the true miracle worker one day. And for his sake, 
I mean this with all sincerity. I pray to God that his soul is made alive, that he might repent. Because what he is doing is a travesty. He's turning people away from the miracle worker, Jesus Christ. He's making a mockery of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he's crushing people. He's crushing faith. He's not inspiring it. I pray he's converted, he's regenerated, he's saved before he meets Christ. Would it not truly be an amazing thing if this man went from modern day phony healer to a modern day Zacchaeus? Wouldn't it be amazing? We need to be praying for that. Why am I talking about this modern healing myth that has become so popular in our day? Because I'm convinced that the modern ministry of healing has seen, as seen on TV, turns many people away from the truth of the Word of God. It also causes God's legitimate healings to go unnoticed. Or worse, it causes people to doubt the legitimacy of any healing. We serve a God who is still in the healing business. I do not want you to walk away today saying healings don't happen. I want you to walk away convinced that healings do happen. They do happen. They just don't happen through a bunch of hucksters. They happen through the power of God and His Spirit. And they happen all the time. And they go unnoticed because they're not always grand, and they're not always in a football stadium somewhere, and they're not always on the backs of a bunch of poor people. They go unnoticed because they happen in common everyday life as faithful men and women cry out to their Father and He answers prayer. That's how it happens. And it still happens. It happens all the time. I still believe that our Sovereign Lord heals the sick he heals the blind. He heals the deaf. He makes the lame to walk. He does all this in our day, not back in the Bible times. But today, today, He still does it. But I'm convinced that many critics of the faith are given ammunition to blast the miracle stories of the Bible as nothing more than fairy tales because of the phony healings that are promoted by TBN and the others of their ilk. Miracles were always intended for one purpose, that the glory of God might be displayed so that men and women worship Him through thanksgiving. Secondly, miracles occurred with the preaching of God's Word for the conversion of souls. Notice I didn't say miracles occurred and people got saved. Always people got saved when the miracle was over and the Word of God was proclaimed to them. Then they believed. And that's contrasting everything we see on TV, where they have whole services, and even locally here, where they have whole services where nothing happens but a healing, supposedly. Miracles attested to the fact that Jesus was and is the Christ. Miracles were also known as signs. They were known as signs. This is specifically what John called the miracles, which he recorded in his Gospel account. John was recording signs of the Christ. He recorded seven such signs. He doesn't record all the miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't follow their trend of narration. He becomes very theological about these healings. He always is pointing us to Christ and saying, this sign He did because He's God in the flesh. It's like a neon flash in the book. So we see it and it just comes off the page. 
unlike the modern movement, these signs were not done for money. They were not done as a circus act to draw crowds, though crowds did come, but that wasn't their purpose. They were not even done primarily, first of all, so that people would believe, although in John's account, almost without exception, someone or a group of people believe because they see the sign. But that wasn't their primary purpose. Their primary purpose is that Jesus display the glory of God and cause those who believe in Him to worship through, through thanksgiving. Through thanksgiving. Last week we looked at an overview of the Gospel of John through the seven I Am statements recorded in John. Today I want us to look at the seven signs of Christ's ministry recorded for us in the Gospel of John. My desire is that we leave believing in Jesus as the Son of God and that by believing in Him we will have eternal life in and through His name. That's my hope. That's the point of the message. That's what I want us to take home is belief in Jesus Christ. Let's look at these signs together. Turn to John 2, verses 1 through 11. If you aren't there already, this is the first recorded sign that John gives us. And I want to read this passage. I'm not going to read every passage for time's sake, okay? I'm going to... I'm going to point you to the passage and we're going to walk through the whole gospel pretty much, but I'm going to do it quickly. But this one I want to camp out just a moment. Because it would seem odd to me, and I'm sure to you, that Jesus chooses for His first miracle the changing of water to wine. It would seem odd to us, and it would seem counter-Christian in our culture. So I want to read it, and then I want to talk about it a little. On the third day, verse 1, there, were, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to, his search, to the servants, Do whatever He tells you. She understood that he was saying, I'm God. My hour hadn't come. I'm not going to die yet. I'm not going to show all my glory yet, but I, I have great glory. And she picked that up from the answer and said, do whatever he says to do. That's probably always struck you as odd. It's always struck me as odd. Sounds disrespectful when you read it with the wrong tone, but it's very respectful. Jesus was not disrespecting his mama. So... Then it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. These are big jugs. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the very top, to the brim. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine... And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs, of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. Remember I said the first point of all the signs is to manifest the glory of God. And His disciples believed in Him. Secondary purpose, they believed. I didn't dream that up. I'm not that creative nor that smart. It comes from the Bible. So let's look at this miracle here. First, I, th this is alcoholic beverage. I want to clear that up. 
As a matter of fact, I believe that based on the comments of the steward at the feast, this was a wine of high alcoholic content, not low alcoholic content. Why do I believe that? Notice he says in the text, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, their taste buds are deadened. They are now feeling themselves. They're free, so to speak. Then the poor wine. But you have saved the greatest, the best, until last. That tells me that this wine was the best. And by being the best, it was what they would have drank before they got to the poor stuff. When they had drank enough, the poor stuff, good stuff, it didn't matter. These wedding feasts went on for a long time. We know that from tradition. Okay? Now, custom dictated that the person throwing the party gave the people the expensive stuff first. Then, when they drank enough not to carry anymore, he gave them the cheap stuff. But Jesus' wine is the best wine. I only make this point because some strain to force this not to be alcohol. They call it grape juice or some other hybrid kind of alcoholic, but not really Look, do not do, uh, do not do that. Do, do not do that with the Bible. Because it doesn't fit your tradition and what you kind of want to practice individually, then make the Bible say what you want it to say. When we do that, we invite the critics to mock us. We invite lost men to laugh at us. Jesus doesn't need us to apologize for Him. Jesus drank wine. He drank wine with his friends to celebrate, to enjoy life. And we as Christians do not need to excuse him for this practice. This is not my focus in this message, but I need to say it because we live in a repressive Christian culture in regard to this issue. We are the ones that are unhealthy on this issue, not Jesus. Jesus is not out of line. We are. We're the ones who need to follow scriptural mandate for maturity, moderation, and freedom in this issue, we need to move from legalism to freedom in Christ, not so that we can become consumed with wine, but so that we're not legalistic in our approach to life. I believe, I believe it firmly, there will be thousands, hundreds of thousands more people in hell because of legalism than because there was a freedom to drink wine or alcohol. Thousands and hundreds of thousands more. When I go to sleep, when I wake up, my thought's not a fear for you in alcohol. My fear for you and for me is legalism, which always kills. And so I'm just saying, in this text, don't excuse Jesus for what He does. He does it for a purpose. And I want to get to the purpose now. This is the point of the miracle. Not that Jesus made wine. That's not the point. Here we see that Jesus takes the ritual washing water of Jews and He turns it into wine. Notice that in the text. This isn't just wash your hands kind of water. This is pure water for the rite of purification. The Jews would have done this out of religious duty. They would have been bound to this tradition. They would have not entered the feast until they had not only washed their hands, but their whole bodies almost. They would have been seeking to be pure through this water. Jesus takes that water, you need to get this, and He makes that water wine. Why? Because He's saying, I'm moving from Jewish religion and tradition to a new covenant, 
not tradition, but grace. That's the point. The old covenant is gone. It is fading away, as the book of Hebrews says. And the new covenant is coming to life before your eyes. In the old covenant, you washed yourself meticulously to keep the law. In the new covenant, I give you wine for the sake of joy for your soul. When you're with me, you have joy, joy everlasting. Wine around the world is seen as a cause, as a, as a great cause of celebration and joy. It's no mistake Jesus didn't make Coke. He didn't make Coke because worldwide, Coke's not seen as a drink of celebration. Wine is. Get what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the great I am over a new covenant which is better than the old. Don't live in the old covenant. Come join me. Be joined to me in this new covenant. And later in John 15, as we saw last week, he takes the vine, the wine vine, the grape vine, and says, I'm that vine. There's no mistaking in these symbols. John knows what he's doing. He's begging you to see Jesus as the great I am. He's the great I am who brings the new covenant. Represented here in this great miracle. Secondly, we see the nobleman's son. The second great sign in this book is the nobleman's son. It's in John 4. Turn there, 46 through 54. Jesus heals this man's son. Jesus displays his power over physical sickness in this story. This is not just some spiritual tale. This is not just some uh, story made up so that we can see a spiritual truth. I think there is spiritual truth there. But primarily we see he healed a man from his sickness, a man's boy from his sickness. Don't ever make the miracles only spiritual. They happened. They are historical. We don't have to run from that. When they laugh and mock you because you believe in miracles, simply hold to God's word as true and say, yes, I believe it. If they say you're ignorant, stand with the ignorant of the masses of Christianity through time. Stand with Christ Himself. This happened. He healed a man. This is also in Cana of Galilee, we're told from the text. He's gone back to Cana of Galilee where He changed the water into wine. And now this man comes and He makes a plea for His sick son. And Jesus initially speaks harshly of the people needing a sign to believe. Notice that. I want you to notice that. If you were the nobleman coming to Jesus, I mean, you would think He's doing the right thing, Carlton. He's coming to the one who can heal His son. Jesus should be happy. But on the surface of it, when he answers, he doesn't look happy, does he? Unless I do a great sign, you will not believe. That doesn't sound like an overwhelming response from Jesus. That would have crushed me, possibly. It might have crushed you. But it puts on full display this man's tenacity and courage in the face of Christ. He gets the answer as we look in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's the answer he gets when he says, heal my son. A lot of people would have walked off. They wouldn't have brought it up again. Look what the man does. Sir, come down before my child dies. He's persistent before Christ. Not arrogant, not demanding, but persistent. He continues to ask. The man knows his son is dying and he knows the only hope he has is that Jesus come and heal him. That's the only hope he's got. And he will not be deterred from initial hard answer when he talks to Christ. Many of us are defeated by the first sign of a hard answer from God 
when we've been praying. We're defeated. We pray for deliverance from sin. We pray for a sick family member or friend. Maybe we're praying for our troubled marriage and it looks like a hard answer is coming and we just quit. We just walk off. We just give up. We say it's too hard. Surely God doesn't want to do this thing, I guess. I guess He wants me to suffer. I guess He wants my friend to suffer. I guess He wants my marriage to become tumbling down. And this is a great example of persistence. Not demanding, not arrogant, but He just says, Sir, if you don't come, He's going to die. He made His request known before God. He saw that His hope was in this one and this one alone, and He kept asking. And then... Because he didn't lose hope, because he didn't give up and give in, because the nobleman continued. Notice the nobleman gets his answer. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He knows that Jesus, what Jesus is saying is true. He knows he needs a sign. He knows he's full of unbelief. He knows his condition. But he knows God is the only one who can help him. So he keeps praying. He keeps asking. And look what happens. In verse 53, Jesus' seemingly harsh answer, after Jesus says, go back home, your son's going to be well. He's, he's well. He's going to live. Now the man goes home, and on the way, the servants come out and meet him, and they say, your son's well. And he asked, when did he begin to improve? And he knew it was the exact hour Jesus said, go home. Your son will live. He knew it and he believed when he heard it and he believed even more when he saw the fruit of how powerful Jesus is over sickness. He believes even more. He's bolstered in his faith. Why? Because he didn't quit praying. We quit praying. We quit praying. We pray and then we quit because we think, well, God must not want to do it. I'm just going to quit. Not going to ask him anymore. And listen, sometimes the thing we prayed for happens in the future and we miss the whole blessing of it. We missed it because we quit praying. We quit asking. We let our unbelief beat us. We let a hard answer, a first initial hard answer, a non-answer deter us. And so then the thing we wanted happens and we don't give glory to God. We just think it's coincidence. This man didn't think it was coincidence because he kept asking. If you don't do something, my son's going to die. He's not going to make it. That was his last plea. And Jesus said, he'll live. He believed. He went home. The servant meets him. He believes even more. Why? Because he was persistent. Because he kept in faith, believing. Even in his unbelief, he kept asking, God, do what only you can do. He sees this thing and he believes. And the text tells us his whole household believes. It did take a sign for them to believe. Jesus wasn't lying. He wasn't just pontificating his frustration when he said, unless you see a mighty sign, you will not believe. It was true. It was true. In this great sign, we see that the Lord has power over sickness. Notice he says it. He speaks it. He doesn't touch the boy. He doesn't see the boy. He just speaks. His word is powerful. Go, your son will live. And Jesus didn't have to go to the boy. He didn't have to go through some physical ritual to make it happen. He didn't have to blow on anybody. Jesus is the great I Am who has power over all sickness. When He commands it to cease, it ceases immediately. Third thing here. Third sign. Lame man is healed. The lame man is healed. John 5, 1 through 15. 
we see again His great power, Jesus' great power over paralysis this time. We've moved, setting the first sign aside, because that sign was about the new covenant. When we get into His miracles over these different sicknesses, they progress. The first boy has a fever. The second man can't walk. There's a reason for that. We're going to get to it at the end. Here we're given one of the saddest stories in the Gospel of John. I say it's the saddest because as I studied it over the last few weeks, I I would say that the myth of being healed by being the first to touch the water in the pool after an angel has stirred it up is on the same level of the stuff we see that I was talking about earlier in the Hucksters. There were thousands of people, hundreds of people gathered around this pool because of a myth. Because of a myth that an angel was going to come down they were going to get healed. And here this poor man is, disadvantaged because he can't walk, and the system automatically puts him at the end of the line. He said, as soon as I go down to step in, I drag myself over to the pool. Somebody steps in right before me, and I can't be healed. This man, when Jesus meets him, is completely and utter hopeless. He's the picture of hopelessness. How can I be healed? Jesus doesn't avoid his hopelessness. Jesus looks him in the eyes. He found this man. He was looking for this man when he entered into that portico and the pool's there. He's looking for this paralyzed man. And when he finds him, he looks him in the eyes and asks a question which you and I would think is way out of line. It's akin to walking up to somebody who can't walk and saying, Would you like to walk again? It's politically incorrect. He pointed out the man's weakness. He pointed out the man's hopelessness. He pointed out the man's deficiency. Do you want to be healed? Nonsensical question, right? Seemingly, on the surface. But Jesus is the master at bringing us to reality about who we are and what our need is. And He's doing it in this miracle. Do you want to be healed? I can't be healed. His answer tells it all, doesn't it? I, I, I can't. I can't help myself. I'm hopeless. I've given up. But Jesus has purpose. He confronts the myth and the hopeless condition of the man and then He forces the man to face it. Face it. You can't do it. You're not good enough. And Jesus heals the man. And He simultaneously challenges the legalism of the people around Him over keeping the Sabbath. He does it in one miracle. He busts their bubble on the myth and He challenges the Sabbath. And He shows Himself to be the great I Am over paralysis and the Lord of the Sabbath all in one fell swoop. They attack Him because He healed the man on the Sabbath day. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing to me. Here a man has been lame for however many years, and the Lord tells him to get up and take up his bed and walk, and he walks, and their response is, well, you can't do that on Sabbath. It's Saturday. Seventh day. Rest. Aha! You're a lawbreaker. Legalism. Jesus says, God's working now. And because He's working, I will work. God was working on that Sabbath. Jesus is showing a great principle here. The Sabbath was not made... The man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man. Don't let your crummy, legalistic, religious boxes keep God from doing what He will do because He's working. That was side point to the main point that I have power over paralysis. I can heal a man with a boy with a fever, and I can heal a lame man. 
And then we move on to the fourth sign. Jesus feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. We're taking a jet tour. We're moving fast. I understand that. But I think it's helpful for us to see Jesus, this portrait of who He is. This is one of the most familiar signs in all the Bible. Jesus displays His power to provide a full meal. A full meal for 5,000 men, probably around 15,000, 20,000 people when women or children are included. Fascinating story. Because He takes five loaves and two fish, He makes enough for everybody to give full and have 12 baskets full of leftovers. Again, no physical uh, display of some ritual. He simply takes what they give Him, He looks to heaven, He blesses it, breaks it, gives it to them and says, give it to the people. That's it. Here we're confronted with His ability, Jesus' ability to supply all of our needs. Here we have the answer to Forgive us this day our daily bread. We have it right here. The next time your cravings are driving you, remember we serve one who's greater than our cravings. We serve one who supplies all of our needs. The next time you grumble about the broccoli kids, remember God gives us what we need. God gives us what we need. That was for my kids. He's not only able to provide food for our daily life, but He's providing the air we breathe. He's providing the beat of our heart. He's he's providing the function of our brain. He's binding together the universe with the power of His Word. Hold, hold, hold. He's holding it together. All of it. Not just giving some food to 20,000 people. That's child's play for God. He's providing everything for everyone across the globe. Close to 7 billion people, and all of them have exactly what God intends them to have. All of them. Because He's the great I Am who provides our daily bread. Fifth sign, walking on water. This also tends to be a favorite of children. For obvious reasons. 16 through 21, they all want to walk on water. Who's not afraid of a storm when they're children? I was always deathly afraid when I was a little boy at night. I didn't mind them so much in, in daytime, but when it was dark and the lightning started flashing, the wind started blowing, the rain started beating, I, I, I wanted to get to Mama, you know, get safe. Everybody's scared of it, and some of you are still scared of it. The disciples are caught in a storm. They're on the sea, about three or four miles out to sea, we're told. They're struggling to navigate this ship. And that's not a small comment because these are professional fishermen, some of them. They've been navigating that sea all their life. And they're struggling. They're struggling. They cannot save themselves. They're starting to feel a little desperate. And Jesus isn't with them. He stayed behind on the shore. And now He sees them struggling and He comes. No sweeter words in all the Bible than they are struggling and they are fearing for life. And Jesus, seeing it in His prayer meeting with His Father, comes down from the prayer meeting and walks on water to get to them. That's amazing. Jesus sees them and He comes to them. He didn't prevent the storm from coming on them, but He's going to prevent the storm from destroying them. You need to remember that in that in life, He's not going to stop all the storms of life, but He will stop them from destroying your faith. He will always stop them, if you're His child, from destroying your faith. He comes when He sees the struggle. 
and he is tender to them. He walks on water. He defies physics. He breaks the natural laws. Why? Because Jesus is the great I Am who controls nature and He calms storms of life with His presence. He got in the boat. He didn't even, in this account, John doesn't even say He said stop. He just climbed over the side of the boat, got in. When He got in, the whole thing stopped. His presence calmed. Not only the hearts of the disciples, but the sea itself. He's the God of all nature. He's the God who calms the storm with His presence. Sixth sign, the blind man, the power over sight. Jesus, in John chapter 9, does an amazing thing. He heals a man who has been blind from his birth. I personally believe He didn't have eyeballs. Just my belief. It doesn't say it in the text. Okay? I, I believe that because... He makes mud balls, he spits on the ground, he makes the mud, he puts it on the guy. Secondly, the man must have been deformed. If you've ever seen a guy that's lacking an eye, his face deforms, his socket dries. It doesn't, the eye is created in such a way that if there's no eyeball, the, the socket won't grow properly. He was disfigured. Why do I think he was disfigured? Because when he came in, the parents say, well, he kind of looks like our boy, but I'm not real sure. Yeah, I think he is. That's not the response of a mama, by the way. Something changed about this young man from the time his parents dropped him off at the temple to beg for money, probably. And when he showed back up with eyes, seeing, they immediately said, looks like him? Not quite sure. Maybe. Right? So I think he made this man eyes. I think he made them out of mud because that's how he made us originally. <laughs> anyway, in the ancient world, even today, there's not a greater obstacle than blindness. I mean, blindness is severe. And especially if it's from birth. No one could overcome blindness. No one could cure this dreaded condition. But Jesus walks through the temple. And he finds a blind man who had been blind from birth. He declares that he is blind that so that, this is the declaration about why he is blind, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Yes, God sometimes gives affliction so his glory might be displayed. It's not because of sin. It's because God wants to show himself powerful over blindness. That's why you're blind. Now, that might offend some of you that have an illness that you've had all your life. And I would just encourage you to confess your sin to God and then ask Him to display His glory through your sickness. Stop trying to be mad at God for what He has done. He has great purpose for what He has done. And beg Him to use it for His glory. I use this modern example only because I know her story so well because it's ministered to me. Joni Erickson Tata, if you don't know who she is, go today and look her up. Joni Erickson Tata, a great swimmer, athletic, in her team, in her prime of life, jumps off into the water, something she's done hundreds of times before, and she hits her head and is paralyzed for the rest of her life. Not from the waist down, from the neck down. Cannot move by herself. And God saved her. And, and I'm not going to take time to detail her whole story. Many of you know it. But there, in my mind, is no greater 
testimony in our day to the glory of God in handicap and sickness than Joni Erickson Tata. She today, suffering from cancer, while she is paralyzed, is writing daily to encourage people to love Christ more. All your sickness is not about you, and it's not about me. It's about Him. And it's an opportunity. It's a, it's a, it's a classroom for the world to see His glory. It's a, it's a laboratory for, he, for Him to show out and show the world, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. They, they are not doing it because of who they are. They are doing it because of who I am. It's not a story. Please don't take Joni or any other suffering saint as a story to talk about how great the Spirit of man is. No. It's the Spirit of God. Nobody lays flat on their back day after day and having to be served in the most menial ways by their husband and does that with joy and does that with encouragement and does that with power. Nobody. Nobody. She says, when I was paralyzed, all I could think about was killing myself until He saved me. And then it made all the difference. All I'm saying is, here's this blind man. He was blind from birth so that Jesus could walk through the temple, find him, and say, we'll make you smiles today. And you're going to see. Because he's the great I am over even blindness. The greatest debilitating disease of their day and maybe of ours. And the seventh sign. I told you they build. They get bigger and bigger. And the crescendo, the grand display of the great I am through the signs is in chapter 11. Word comes to our Lord that his best friend possibly, if it wasn't Mary or Martha, it had to be Lazarus, is sick. Unto death. And the Lord responds by waiting two days before He responds. Strange. If you get the news about your friend, I don't suggest that. Run to them, okay? This is not to be taken as a program. Jesus has a purpose. He waits. And then He tells His disciples after waiting, He's asleep. They say, well, if you're sleeping, you'll get well. Don't go down there. They're trying to kill you, you know. No, no. You misunderstand. He's dead. Well, if He's dead, then... Why are we going? Had to be what they were thinking. If he's dead, send a card. Don't put yourself in jeopardy. But they go. He shows up and he comes on the scene of utter mourning. People, professional mourners have gathered and they are weeping, wailing, throwing dust, ripping clothes probably, playing loud instruments. They are, they are severely grieved. And he meets Mary and Martha and then he, moved in the Spirit, cries... Because of, the de- because of the desperate situation. Because our Lord is compassionate. He cried. Don't make it more than that. It doesn't have to be more than that. He loved Him. And He hurt for Him. And so He says, where have you laid Him? And He goes and stands in front of the tomb. And He says, move the stone. Lord, He stinketh. One of the great passages of the Bible in the King James Version. Lord, he stinketh. He's been there four days now. Jesus says to the tomb and to the dead man inside who's been dead four days, wrapped and bound. Lazarus. That's not just for editorial sake. If he had not said Lazarus, 
and he had simply said, come forth, the whole place would have emptied. I don't say that jokingly. I believe it. So he identifies him. Lazarus. To all the others, it's not your time yet. I've come for Lazarus. At that moment, I believe life left the Lord and went into Lazarus. He woke up. And his ears were attuned and his eyes were opened and his heart was real again and it was beating and he was wrapped there. Can you imagine the sheer panic of being wrapped head to foot, not able to move a muscle? And yet he hears, come forth. And the Bible tells us in the original that he then came forth, sliding, bound, hand and foot. He can't walk. When Jesus commanded, he came out. And he's standing there, and then Jesus tells those standing around, whose jaws are on the ground, and probably some passing out, unwrapping. He's alive. Listen. All of the signs, this is how I want to close, all of the signs have a purpose. All of them have a purpose. His power over all of these things, sickness, over hunger, over all these things, over death, have a purpose. He is the great I Am who has power over death. I want to close with, this, with some spiritual parallel here to these great signs. John said when he, that he wrote all of this so that you would read the Gospel and you would believe in Jesus and in believing in Him have eternal life. Now, why did he select these particular signs to record for us? Because he said, if I wrote everything that he did and said, it would fill all the books of all the world. Why did he choose these seven? That's where I want to go. I believe it's because each of them parallel our spiritual condition prior to Christ, saving us by the power of His Spirit. They all parallel that. When we read about the dead legalism of water purification, the sickness of a nobleman's son, the man who cannot walk, the hunger of 5,000 men, the chaos of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, the blind blindness of the man in the temple, the deadness of Lazarus, we're simply reading our condition as we are in our natural man, in our natural state. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are sick with the rebelliousness and the law-breaking that we are all committing. We are bound by our legalism. We are paralyzed by our condition of sin. We are hungry in our soul. We are living in constant chaos and disorder. We are blinded by the God of this age. We are hopeless and we need the great I am he is our joy. He is our healing. He is the power to walk. He is the bread that satisfies our hunger. Order. He is the order to our chaos, the light to our blind eyes, and the new life of regeneration to our dead, dead spirits. He is the great I Am. And I want you to believe it. And I want you to be saved. Because there is not salvation in anyone else or anything else except Him. He's the great I Am. And John wrote it so you would believe. And I want you to believe. I plead with you. Come to Him today. Come. Because His, eye, his eyes are on you. His arms are spread wide. There's room for you in this family. But the door will close. And when it closes, whoever is outside will die in judgment. It'll be too late. Like in the days of Noah... Though they pound against the door, God has shut the door. Don't wait till that day comes. And you don't know when it comes. 
Listen, I don't want to scare you to death, but the fact is healthy people leave church services like this and die between here and home. You could face Him today. The fact is, there is not one thing that needs to happen before Christ splits the eastern sky and calls us before the judgment seat. Don't wait until the door is closed because He's the great I Am. And His offer stands. His offer is life in Him. How do I receive that? How do I do it? Well, I didn't reference this passage, but in making way for the table, which will be our altar call today, I'm going to call you to come and take the bread and take the juice and take it inside yourself as an act of faith that He is the great I Am. But listen, before I do that, the greatest miracle in the Gospel of John that is described for us is in John chapter 3. And let me just give you that text. John 3, 1. I want you to just look at it this afternoon and pray about it. John 3, 1 through 18. It's the greatest miracle. And it happens. It happens every day around the world. And it can happen here. Here's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born from above. So the short answer is you can't save yourself. You're blind, you're paralyzed, you're dead, you're sick with your rebellion and lawlessness. You, 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 you cannot save yourself any more than Lazarus could save himself. You're dead. But the greatest miracle is that from above the Spirit of God comes in with the water of the Word and just as Jesus stood before Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, the Word and the Spirit say, Come, and dead souls wake up. Hard hearts turn to flesh. Belief is infused and salvation comes. It's called regeneration. It's called being born from above. It happens on God's time. It happens by God's power, for God's purpose, for His glory, and for your good. And if He's calling you inwardly, I'm calling you outwardly, that's to no avail. I can't save you. But if through my calling outwardly, He begins to call inwardly, cry out in faith. Believe. And you'll be saved. And then come and take this supper. This supper is the supper to fellowship with the living I Am. This is it. We take the juice in representation of His blood. We take the bread in representation of His body. We eat it because He said... He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will never die. And this is the outward symbol of that inward reality. So if you've believed, I'm saying come and fellowship with Him at this table. It is open to all who believe, all who have been gathered in to a local fellowship by faith in Christ, who is the Son of God, are free to come and take this supper. And so I open the table now. And I say simply, meditate, call to God, and then come. Come and take the supper. And we'll... Come and get the supper elements and we'll wait for one another and we'll take it. And then we'll be dismissed. You pray and I'll pray for you. Father.